it's funny I just mentioned this in my last video, or at least I think it was my last video, about um, Mortal Coil being much better than I remember it being. That's kind of the similar situation here. Overall, I had pretty negative memories of Waking Moments, thinking of it as a kind of a nonsensical plot, a pedestrian villain of the week, which I'll be talking about later, and overall just a lackluster episode. Not a bad episode, just lackluster. Rewatching it, I found myself enjoying it more, but admittedly a lot of that is because of the speculative nature of it, which I'll get to last, and it is also worth noting that that speculative nature is not something the episode gets credit on. Not really. So... Take that as you will. So, this is the second script written by Andre Bormanis. Uh, you may remember me mentioning him back in Fair Trade, which I praised as one of the best Voyager episodes to date. And Andre had a thing where he used to have a lot of lucid dreams, and he really wanted to do an episode exploring that concept in a science fiction fan uh, setting, right? Okay, I'm with that. He's, a, he's proven himself to be a good author. He's, he can do some good stuff. All right, sure. Then he went and got uh, Kenneth Biller and Jerry Taylor to work with him on the script. <laughs> now, this may sound weird because I've talked before about how uh, I think collaborative efforts when it comes to scripting can be a good thing. But the emphasis there is the can be a good thing. It's actually really obvious the parts of the script that come from Kenneth Biller and the parts that come from Jerry Taylor. I will be pointing them out as we go. But no matter how you look at it, this episode is kind of lacking in the script department, but I don't place that on Andre. I place that on the other two, and the fact that it's pretty clear they had a cool concept and didn't do anything with it, which is just Voyager in a nutshell, isn't it? <clears throat> First of all, I want to mention... Uh, I want to mention one thing really quick. Tim Russ had a scene where... A spoiler alert, by the way. He, you know, as he's a Vulcan... Uh, I know, right? Big spoiler. And he goes to the bridge, and he is nude. Now, the thing is, that scene was written by Kenneth Biller, by the way, to be, you know, oh, no, I've, I've, I'm naked at work, or I'm naked at school. You know, typical dream situation, right? Tim Russ actually argued that it wouldn't work that way for a Vulcan. And I agree with him. Tim Russ, I've always felt, had a really good handle on how a Vulcan mindset really is. I feel that's one of the reasons why he is one of the, if not the, definitive Vulcan actors. Uh, the only competitor, of course, being the gentleman who plays Sarek, whose name I can't remember right off the top of my head. Forgive me. I'm sure. Uh, Mark Leonard, I want to say? Anyways, those two are pretty much the actors as far as Vulcan goes in my opinion and t so Tim Russ argued that he would not actually be embarrassed or ashamed about it because a Vulcan would not be embarrassed about nudity in the same way others do they would view it as a form of function not a form of necessity and they would not actually be embarrassed or ashamed about their own uh, bodies in the same way that humans tend to be or other races and I actually agree with that completely so he decided to go ahead and portray the scene differently, because he argued this and he was basically shot down. They're like, no, we're doing the scene because my name's Kenneth Biller and I don't know how to write comedy. You can even tell that the, the other actors, you know, all the ones who are gathered on the set who are laughing at him, their hearts weren't in it. I've seen these actors give genuine laughter. That's not it. Um, but his, Tim Russ's take on it, his portrayal on it was, all right, he is embarrassed, but not because of his body. He is embarrassed because... He broke protocol. He forgot to wear his uniform in a place where uniforms are mandatory as a form of cohesive unit structure. And that's something that would bother uh, Tuvok in particular as a security chief. 
And he would feel a degree of embarrassment for those around him because he has an understanding and comprehension of other races, especially humans, and knows that they would be embarrassed to be to see that situation. So he portrayed it in that particular light. And I think that actually gets across in his performance. He does a really subtle but well-done job of it. So good job, Tim Russ, for proving me right about something I've been saying throughout this entire series, namely that a good actor can salvage a bad scene. Harry has a dream in which Seven of Nine hunts him down and makes out with him. Why am I bringing this up? Every single other dream we see or hear about is described as a bad dream. In some cases, an outright nightmare. You know, Tuvok was nude. Janeway's crew died. I'll mention that in a moment. Um, Chakotay was, was being forced to hunt, even though he doesn't agree morally with hunting. Uh, Neelix was boiling in his own stew. Uh, Tom was crashing the shuttle. You know, etc., etc. And yet Harry's is being stalked and made out with by Seven. That can be interpreted in many different ways. The first and most obvious is the one you're already thinking about. I'm not going to further comment on that. Sci-Fi Debris talked about that in his own way. He actually does a jump cut to make it look worse than it actually is. But the idea here is that, given all the emphasis that's put on the fact that they are bad dreams, you probably shouldn't have had Harry have a dream where... He's making out with Seven of Nine. I'm sorry, but that's probably not a bad dream for most people. I know that's crazy. And later on, if with the way he acts about it, though he is embarrassed, at no point in time does he seem like it was bad. You ever notice that? So it's a weird situation, which brings me to the second interpretation. Not all the dreams were bad. The script just wasn't doctored as much as it would need to be because three people were working on it, and all three of those people are completely different in terms of writing style. Probably a little bit more likely on that one. A, a good way to flesh this out, I think, would have been to show more dreams that are not nightmares, that are not bad dreams, and to uh, give a little bit more variety there, other than you know seven or so bad dreams and then one dream that isn't, or one dream that's just left up to interpretation. Just my take on it. Janeway's dream, though, that's an interesting one. If you remember, I mentioned that Janeway's character arc began in Year of Hell, even though Year of Hell never happened. This is the next step. What is Janeway's nightmare? Now, if you think about it, you know, maybe with hindsight, this is just obvious. But even at the time, I'm sure some people would look at this and say, well, of course Janeway's nightmare is that her crew dies of old age because she failed to get them home. And yet when you really analyze the character and the way that her character arc is going to go, it makes a lot more sense that, in fact, she was genuinely horrified at the fact that she failed her crew. That she wasn't good enough. And it's her fault. Completely. She stranded them here. And she failed to get them home. The, I keep mentioning... I actually have in my notes the unintentional character arc. I mentioned this back in uh, Year of Hell as well. The thing with Janeway is she never had a character arc. Okay? No. I'm sorry. She didn't. The writers never wrote a character arc for Captain Janeway. We just need to accept this as fact. But there is an unintentional arc for Janeway, which is interpretive because of the fact that it was only pushed forward by Mulgrew herself. Mulgrew had her own interpretation of her character, portrayed it in a certain way, and she acted in certain scenes across multiple episodes in a way that forms an arc where none was actually designed to be there. And so it kind of works to give her a character arc, which is why I call it the unintentional character arc, as opposed to both Seven and the Doctor who had pre-described uh, character arcs written you know, from the get-go and ready to go. Whether that makes it invalid or not is, of course, up to interpretation, but I just wanted to be clear about that. Anyways, so this is a definite second step in that, and the way she portrays it, and the idea of her crew dying because she failed them, 
Just let that sink in for a while. We'll be touching on it a few more times in the future. This episode has odd structure. I don't have many notes on this one, by the way. Uh, the odd structure of this episode is bizarre, because, and it is the result of the multiple writers thing again. This episode has really good build-up, and it is designed as if there's going to be a big mystery. But there is no mystery. We know from the first minutes of the episode that there's these aliens and that they're in their dreams. We know from the title that this has to do with some kind of dreams or something like that. And there is no payoff because we never actually find out what's going on with the aliens or why they're doing any of this. No, really, we don't. Every time they talk to us about it, they are almost definitively proven to be lying about it. And any time they try to threaten us, they do so in a way that is nonsensical. So we don't actually know what they're after. That's Kenneth Biller's writing all over again there, uh, in case you're wondering. <clears throat> so it's a weird episode because it feels like it should have been better, and I really feel like the first chunk of the episode was written by Andre because there's a lot of character stuff, and it's a lot of build-up, and then it just sits there, and it's like when you really have to sneeze, and you're like... And then it just... nothing. You know, it, that's exactly... that's this episode in a nutshell. So, uh, I have two big notes, which I'm going to save for the end here. But I do want to say there are some small nice touches in this episode. And again, props to the actors and the director. Uh, this is actually the very last episode directed by uh, Alexander Singer. Or no, Alexander Singer? I actually can't remember his name. I'm sorry, I forgot to write it down. Uh, the very last episode he has ever directed, ever. He has actually not directed in television since then. Uh, and in Star Trek since then. He's done quite a bit of stuff, though. And I think he did a really good job. He has a lot of little touches that help flesh out characterization. A very show-don't-tell thing. I'll give you some specific examples. The way Tom and Bellana act around each other, even when they're not doing the romantic scenes, well, scene, there's only the one, actually really shows how close the two have become. Because, you know, they've got the meeting room and everyone's standing or doing or whatever, just like you always would, but the two of them are sitting casually on a desk, basically leaning up against each other. Tiny little point, but it shows how close the two have become. You don't really need to emphasize that. You don't need to shove it into our faces. It's just a nice way of showing, again, the great chemistry the two actors have and the fact that the two have, uh, in character, show, uh, you know, the two characters have, have really started to get close and that relationship is still progressing. So, nice touch there. Nice undercurrent. Um, two notes here, really quick. Uh, first of all, Voyager regularly scans the brainwaves of everybody on the crew. We know this, actually, from a previous episode, but it comes up in this one because they can actually show that all the brainwave activity is identical, which is how they find out they're in the same dream. I'll talk about that in a minute. But it's one of those weird situations because if you said to me, hey, Arsha and Gaia, or the lore runner if you prefer, we're going to be monitoring your brain activity at all moments of the day constantly and recording it, my response would be, or possibly, or maybe, hmm. You know, I, that sounds horrifying to me. But then again, that's because I lack trust in other people to have power over information or power over me, right? In Star Trek, especially in Starfleet, it's a little more understandable. And the weird thing is, the more I thought about it, I mean, I've always thought about it as a creepy thing, but as I was watching this episode, I really was thinking about it because I didn't have much else to think about. It makes a lot of sense for Starfleet a group that has encountered aliens and phenomena and energy beings and mind possession and all sorts of other weirdness of the week ever since, you know, the uh, 2000s, so in other words, for centuries at this point, to have that kind of technology active and running on its more modern starships because you never know when you might need it. You never know when it might actually be useful. And it's not like they're misusing it. 
it's not like they really the idea of misusing it even occurs to them. So I can kind of see it. I just wanted to mention that. Uh, second note, this one's a little less forgivable. Chakotay flies the ship to the planet. Now, they never mention this. They actually kind of try... It's, it's, a, it's a writing technique, so you can kind of tell where the fingerprints are here. But they kind of slide under the rug the fact that Chakotay is running the ship completely by himself. Uh, I mean, the Doctor's there, but the Doctor doesn't know how to run anything. So the Chakotay is soloing the entire Voyager ship to get to the planet where they need to go. One of the things I liked about Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, was they actually bothered to include dialogue and make it a plot point that Scotty had specially designed... Scotty, mind you, Montgomery Scott, had specially designed uh, algorithms and whatnot in order to automate parts of the ship, and even then, it would only barely allow them to function on the ship. Now, yes, it did allow them to get to their destination and then do, like, five other things, and that was basically it, and that did lead to the destruction of that ship. I'll be talking about that soon, hopefully. Or maybe I already have? I'll have to check my calendar. Anyways, the point being, that made a lot of sense, and I'm with that, because, I mean, if you think about it, what's the point of the other 400 people in a starship if five can run it, right? And, and speaking as someone who knows a fairly large amount about how ships work in real life, and a embarrassingly large amount about how ships work in fiction, it's, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek being my big ones, they need all those crew doing all those jobs constantly. Now, the argument could be made, well, maybe he, he didn't do anything fancy. You know, warp to here, done. Maybe he could do that just by himself. Yeah, okay, I could totally see that. And it is feasible that if he just set a course, warped there, and then did nothing else, uh, I'm, I'm okay with that. And that is very likely what actually happened. But it just struck me as odd that they just kind of wrote that in there and were like, okay, quick, do nothing. Because Chakotay flies the ship by himself. The funny thing is this will actually become a plot point in the episode one later on in this season where they actually do something with that concept. But I'll, of course, save that for that episode. So here's a question. After Chakotay wakes himself from the shared dream, um, all the, the, the crew are sitting there and they're like, okay, our ship has been taken over by aliens who vastly overpower us and Chakotay vanished out of thin air after saying, oh my god, I'm still asleep. What's happening? Uh, there's actually a few other points, but the point is, there's like, I, I feel like there's a giant neon sign just flashing, you're in a dream, you're in a dream, you're in a dream, and the crew are going, what could that mean? Hmm, maybe it's, um, maybe it's like an insurance ad, or, and, and it actually bothers me that the crew is portrayed as so stupid for this one scene. For this one scene, they're portrayed as completely brain-drilling idiots who can't figure out the fact that they're in a dream. A lucid dream, I might add. So their brain faculties are at least mostly intact. And that they're all sharing a dream. That, that doesn't sound like such an alien concept for me, especially not for Star Trek. I like how Tuvok, the super-intelligent Vulcan, was the one who had to postulate the theory that maybe they were having a shared dream. Just, eh, whatever. So then there's the warp core breach scene. Now this scene was done by Jerry Taylor, and it has her fingerprints all over it. I'm not going to discuss in detail how it functions like that, but all I'm going to say is give you a few snippets. Uh, let's see. Terrible danger. One, one person uh, is, is completely on the ball, and everyone else is completely incompetent. The one person who's on the ball does the brave and dangerous thing and figures out what's going on and emerges unscathed and smelling like fresh pine. Slight exaggeration with that last part. And the other people are like, oh my god, you are so amazing to have accomplished this. And Tuvok even has a line 
about how he value he, he basically says you know you should not risk your life you're too valuable and Janeway actually bothers to thank him for it that whole scene just has Jerry Taylor's fingerprints all over it and that being said one thing I want to say about that scene I've always thought that scene was dumb okay now I've kind of already said why I think that scene's dumb it's another Janeway Mary Sue scene more minor than the previous ones I'll grant that but it irritates me nonetheless but when I was watching it this time with analysis mode really cranked on I got to thinking now, I've actually had quite a few lucid dreams in my life. My dreams are... Well, we're not going to talk about it. I've shared a few on the stream, and I'm sorry for those of you who have heard them. Um, they're pretty disturbing. But the thing I've always noted is in my lucid dreams, I do have the ability to think, reason, and have logic. But that logic is always just a little bit flawed in, like, one little manner so that something that makes perfect sense in the dream doesn't actually make any sense when I think about it when I'm awake. Now... I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt here, because here's the here's the deconstruct. Here's what doesn't make sense. They're about to have a warp core breach. Now, I don't know if you know what that means, so I'm gonna just lay it out for you. That means the whole ship's gonna go. That's the destruction of the entire ship. A warp core breach is the primary main power source and power regulator of all the antimatter of the entire ship going detonated all at the same time. That's uh, yeah. Ships don't survive warp core breaches. Uh, there are usually not survivors from warp core breaches. It's pretty much the most deadly, horrible thing that can happen to any ship in, like, all of Star Trek, with the exception of the Borg showing up and knocking on your door and saying, do you have a cup of sugar? So, here's the weirdness of the scene. There's a warp core breach in progress. So, Taurus and Tuvok are like, we've got to run out of the engineering room because then we'll be safe. And Janeway does the brave thing by staying behind in the engineering room with the warp core breach, which will destroy the entire ship. They even acknowledge that it will destroy the entire ship in the episode, by the way. Just in case you think I'm pulling continuity in here. Even within the episode, they mention this. But like I said, it kind of makes sense in that weird sense of logic, in that weird non-dream logic. That's a, that's a bad thing, and oh my god, it's going to destroy the ship, so we need to get out of here, right? But rather than that being taken to its real logical conclusion, they just think of getting out of the room. Now, that's debatable, and I think that is giving them a little bit too much credit, but it's food for thought, and it does make the scene make a little bit more sense and makes it a little less aggravating, and I just thought I'd share that with you guys, because it never occurred to me until I was watching it this time. Uh, I want to give some props to the effects team. I do this all the time. I know nobody cares, but the scene where the they show the cave with all the sleeping people is actually very impressive. It's three shots combined into one. There are three actors, real actual actors, in makeup out there, and then there's a matte painting, which was drawn specifically for this episode, and then there's CGI mixing the two and touching them up and actually adding the, the far distant backgrounds and some lighting effects. It's really impressive. I actually went back and watched it again just to enjoy it, so... As always, I encourage people to enjoy the little details like graphical and sound effects like that. It, it, so, definite props there. I really like Chakotay's plan in this episode. It's wonderfully pragmatic, and it actually makes tons of sense. If you don't hear from me in five minutes, shoot me with a freaking torpedo. I like that. It is pretty much the ultimate, um, no, really, I'm willing to do this. And it makes a lot of sense in context, because that's very Chakotay, isn't it? being willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of his crew. Everything we've talked about with regard to his character back in Displaced and back in uh, Scorpion, it's all very much his personality type to care about others at the expense of himself. 
and to really be the kind of person who makes those snap decisions very well and under and very well under pressure no less so i like that plan and it really just i like it because it is an aspect of his character rather than just an intelligent plan so props there as well and then there's the coda to this episode which is very pat Uh, for those who don't know what i mean it's like oh my god everything's dangerous but then we resolve it and then we have a light moment da 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 that's a pat ending, okay? Pat TV ending. I don't remember what the term comes from off the top of my head, forgive me. But this is very much that. And it's a little aggravating because, there's, like I said, there's no payoff. You're just holding that sneeze, like... And then they have the light, cute moment of, oh, we can't sleep, the end. There's no resolution to anything. There's no anything whatsoever. And that that's pretty much my problem with this episode in a nutshell. I've already described it. I don't want to re- rehash the territory, but yeah, there's... It's just wasted time, basically, with a few interesting tidbits. But that brings me to the two things I want to talk about. My last few notes here. I don't need my notes for these, because the notes is literally just one sentence and another sentence. I've used the term bad guy of the week, villain of the week, race of the week, species of the week. It all basically means the same thing. I've talked about it extensively and how it affects television production in general and how it uh, can, can be a huge hamperance in order to actually flesh out a character or a villain or a race or whatever. The problem, though, is that while there are ways to flesh out a villain of the week or, or bad guys of the week or race of the week, whatever you want to call it, the you know insert here of the week, the very nature of a show like this, and this goes all the way back to the original series, by the way, lends itself towards the fact where all you're really going to have is bad guys of the week. Now, there are exceptions to this, of course, but as a reminder, Klingons, Klingons were originally the bad guys of the week and were intended to be so, and they were so popular they were brought back, the same thing is true with Romulans. Most villains of the week, most races of the week, were intended only to be that, and then were brought back because of their popularity. In fact, I've got another wonderful example for you. The Borg, one of the most recognizable races in Star Trek as far as villainous races go, were a villain of the week. And they were never really intended to be touched up on until some things happened behind the scenes and they were like, okay, because they were popular. So the thing most writers tend to do in, the, in Star Trek in specific is that they make their bad guys of the week have something to them. Usually, uh, it's basically a gimmick. Now, I don't mean that in a negative sense, though. It's something to differentiate them from other races, or at least try to, to make them more interesting in some manner or other, to try and see what sticks. The problem is, I mentioned earlier that popularity thing. Well, that's not just popularity of the fans. In fact, usually it's more popularity in the writing room, you know, in the boardroom where the the writers and the executive producers get together and decide what they want to do next. This is one of the reasons why we got so much of the erosion in this season and later on, too. So, the usage of the bad guy of the week is not really something I disagree with. As weird as that sounds, it's a wonderful way to try out new ideas knowing that you might have the chance to flesh them out in the future, but you probably won't. And so it's kind of a, a creative freedom in its own way, but at the same time very restrictive because remember, you can only show so much of them. Let's not forget the Voth, which I talked about extensively back in uh, just in Origin. I had to think of the episode name. The Voth, in my opinion, were a very well-fleshed-out, very interesting and engaging species that we never saw again until a video game came along and made them actually, you know, have more stuff to do. Which I highly recommend STO, by the way, for anyone who hasn't played it yet, who's a Star Trek fan. I, I really do. It's good stuff. It's actually properly free, too, so you don't even have to buy it. Um, give me money, STO. I've already gotten you, like, three new players. It's gotta be worth something, right? 
Um, but in all seriousness, I, I get where they're going with this. The problem in this specific case is, what is the gimmick of the bad guys of the week? Dreams. But that's not a gimmick. You see the problem here? If you don't, I'm going to try and explain this as poorly as I can, because I'm terrible at explaining things. A gimmick is like, you know, you start with dreams, and then you finish writing the sentence. Or, blah, 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 dreams, blah, 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 blah. You know, that's a gimmick. One word is not a gimmick. And that's the problem. These The race of this week, which I don't think we even have a name for ever, the dream guys, never got fleshed out at all. They use dreams, they can connect people to dreams, and that's it. They don't even have power over those dreams, as we as we discussed. That's one of the only things we actually know about it. They can connect you to dreams, force you to sleep, and have no power over the dreams you're having. That's it. That's not a gimmick. That's the beginning. That, that, that's like a, a rough sketch. We need more. Which brings me to my final point. I actually unintentionally wrote an entire culture based on this race. I say unintentionally because... I forgot the connection. I shouldn't even forget. I didn't realize there was a connection until this. So in other words, there is no deliberate connection between the two. I, I invented it independently, and then I watched this episode you know, today, and I was like, oh, hey, that's all like the blah. The psychic faction, uh, the elemental of, of psychics, in the Elementa campaign, that I, the campaign setting I designed, have an entire world that is in a joint subconscious shared dream state that they merge with one another, right? Now, that's more of a higher consciousness in, as opposed to the dream state, which, which these guys do. But the idea is overall generally the same of what I interpret could have been from these race. So bear with me. This is all just me making this up, basically, okay? But this is what I think they could have done with this race. This is a race that actually values things that are in dreams or the dream state as much as, if not more, than real life. Imagine if here in real life we could actually connect to each other in our dreams. Like, literally, I could be in the same dream that you are, kind of a thing, okay? First of all, that's kind of disturbing, but bear with me, okay? Imagine an entire culture, not necessarily even a species, just a culture, that is developed around the idea that what happens and is in those dreams is as important, again, if or if not more important. Imagine if there was a culture where you would gladly sell or get rid of things that you had in the physical realm in order to gain things in the dream realm. What if there was a culture where something that happened to you in the dream realm, of a, a, a violence that was occurred to you, is something that would be treated as a literal crime? Or if you actually found someone and merged with them as friends or became... Uh, family members or became lovers or whatever, that that would actually carry forward into the real realm or indeed supplant whatever your actual relationship is in the real world because it was in the dream world, which is where things actually matter. Imagine Voyager coming across this, this species and more or less accidentally, because of their proximity to the field they're generating, enter the shared dream of the species and do things in those dreams because they're just dreams and then having to pay consequences for that because those dreams are treated as actual things, real things that have tangible relevance to that species. Imagine what they could have done with a society where there's an entire subdivision of, 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 of uh, infrastructure, of, of economy, of industry that is designed around maintaining people in dream state as long as possible so that their bodies don't decay, so that they have the nutrients they need and their muscles don't atrophy and they don't have the skin problem, which we're not even going to get into, and so that they can stay in the dream state for even longer. And therefore, the people who are the most wealthy and capable 
in that in this society are the people who have that power and knowledge and wealth to keep themselves in dream state more or less indefinitely almost never having to actually wake up and maintain their every you know their physical bodies that kind of a thing and maybe have this whole storyline about how they're still working on the background on trying to actually make it so that they are permanently transferred to the dream state so that they don't even need a physical body anymore trying to enter this new state of consciousness you know that kind of thing there's so much you could do with a culture like that and that's that's just what I wanted to share with you. I, I just wanted to like get the ball rolling. I'd love to hear your guys' ideas on the dream culture, dream society idea thing. You can feel free to tell me it's terrible. It's okay, I understand. But I just feel like there's so much more that can be done with that. But again, we didn't get anything at all. And uh, I think it's a shame. I'll see you next time, guys. Seem to be a little short-handed today. Tom and Harry are both late. I was going to give them another five minutes, but I'll call them now if you'd like. That's all right. I'm a little late myself, aren't I? I wasn't going to mention it. Burning the midnight oil? Actually, I went to bed early for a change, but I had a nightmare and I could not get back to sleep. I had a bad dream last night, too. You tell me yours and I'll tell you mine. I'm sorry I'm late, Captain. Well... I was in the forest with my father. We were hunting deer, which was odd because that was something I always refused to do. We cornered the animal. I looked to my father to see if he was going to kill it. But he wasn't my father anymore. He was a vicious-looking alien. There was an alien in my dream, too. And it wasn't from any race I've seen before. He had sharp ridges on his forehead and on the front of his neck. That's what mine looked like. Oh. I don't mean to be eavesdropping, but I had a nightmare last night, too. And I'm pretty sure I saw the same guy. Tuvok, by any chance, did you have a bad dream last night? I did have a somewhat unsettling dream, yes. It involved an alien with ridges on his face and neck. Well, I'd say this sounds like more than a coincidence. Let's get the rest of the senior staff together and come up with some answers, which reminds me, where's Harry? Bridge, Jensen, Kim. Computer located, Ensign Kim. Ensign Kim is in his quarters. Tuvok, 